Hi everyone. Thanks for joining us for this series of iDug podcasts where we speak to some great people in the DB2 community. I'm Marcus Davidge. And I'm Julia Carter, and we represent the iDug Content Committee. We hope you enjoy today's edition. Hi everyone. We're really lucky today to have Susan Lawson joining us. Susan, welcome. Um, You've got a really interesting bio. You're one of the best known DB2 consultants in the world. Uh, You're an IBM Gold consultant and many people will have heard you speak at iDUG, which is where I first got to know about you. But that's only part of your story, I think. Um, And I'm actually quite starstruck because I have a row of books behind me um, that have been written by you uh, and they've helped me to get through DB2 certification exams, but also understanding things and fixing things in the middle of the night when I've had an unusual call out. So a personal thanks from me for your help with that, because you're an amazing educator. And I think that's a big part of of what you do now. But can you tell us about how it all started and and how you came to work with DB2? Okay, well, let's go way back. I've been working in DB2 since 1988. Um, Even before that, I was working as a tape operator in a data center for the uh, state of Illinois uh, government. And then I got promoted to uh, be part of the database management um, team at uh, at the state. And I was given a choice by my then boss. Um, I was given a choice between working with DB2 or working with artificial intelligence. And this was back in 1988. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about either one of them. So I chose DB2 because it sounded interesting. And I thought artificial intelligence sounded too out there for me. Mm. And uh, so that's how I got started in DB2, which is interesting now that we've come, what, 35 years later, and now artificial intelligence (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is, is right back in our, in our, uh, in our wheelhouse. So um, yeah. I still think I made the right choice, um, even though I'm going to learn artificial intelligence, whether I like it or not now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I was in DB2 support, uh, did a little bit of IMS, um, but what really chose DB2 as the path that I thought would be a better career. And it certainly has. And uh, went on from there to do a couple of odd um, DBA positions, um, just getting to find out what I liked. And I certainly liked education during that part of uh, DB2. And then in 97, well, I, I'm sorry, before that, 95, I did two years with IBM uh, for the Santa Teresa lab, uh, well, which is now, of course, the SBL lab. I was one of the original data sharing advocates when data sharing came out in version four around, um, I mean, I went to work for IBM around 95, so it was around that era, and spent two years as a data sharing advocate, basically the go-between between the customers and the IBM development team, because uh, data sharing, as you probably recall, didn't quite have its... Uh, stability back when it first came out in version four. And so it was quite a challenge getting it to work while keeping the developers uh, fixing the problems. So that's what my job was, was to be the go-between. And it was a lot of fun. It was extremely challenging. Um, Loved every minute of it, but 
a better opportunity came along, and that was with Richard Yevich, as many people know. Um, you know, he was quite the pioneer in, in the DB2 world. And yep. I got an opportunity with him to start building some large, large tables. Of course, back in 1997, this large table was one terabyte, <laughs> six billion rows. Oh, my. Um, but in all honesty, that's where um, a new kind of career came along. And that was the ability to design databases to support large amounts of data while remaining highly available and, you know, while allowing new things like warehouse queries <laughs> to sue, yeah. to be supported by these large tables. You know, how do we mix historical and active data? And how do we mix batch and online in this 24 by 7 world? And then, of course, e-commerce and e-business hits throws us another curveball. And that kind of started a whole new career for me. And that was uh, working on these large projects. And with great people, I've worked with some awesome designers and awesome people along the way. And, you know, we developed ways to house this amount, these large data stores um, while still being able to do day-to-day -day activity, right? So yeah, that's been interesting. And then, of course, a lot of education spawned from there. So, yeah, I do a lot more education and more high-level consulting nowadays more in the terms of project management and large system deployment. And now, of course, getting into the mainframe modernization projects, yeah. as, as we all are. So that's kind of where I'm at now. You mentioned... <laughs> so 35 uh, years long sorry. road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned performance. Uh, you made a bit of a name for yourself being a, the, the go-to performance expert for large tables. Have you got any war stories about performance customers, uh, anything that might interest our listeners? Performance-wise, geez. Okay, I do have okay. one. It, uh, it has to do with performance and availability. Um, and I, when I talk about table designs and, and performance and availability, um, I always tell people that the two go hand in hand. You cannot have, uh, you cannot be available unless you're performing. And of course you can't perform unless you're available. <laughs> so they go yeah. hand in hand. So we got to keep that in mind um, when designing tables, you can't just design for one half of the equation. And during a review of a, of a particular customer, they had an online shopping application and database, and they were 24 by 7. You could order something 24 by 7. Any time of the day or night, you could order from this company. But what I found interesting was they had a batch window, which they were offline. Okay, so how are you doing this? How do you still have a batch window? And how are you offline for three hours? And you're still allowing orders to be processed. Okay, so you're, you're obviously you're hitting your orders and your inventory systems, but yet in the meantime, you're doing your reorgs, your nightly maintenance, your batch maintenance, everything else. So technically they were offline. So I was just curious, you know, how on earth are you accomplishing this? And this was when, you know, 24 by seven, this is when e-commerce really just was starting in a way. And so people really hadn't designed for this type of problem with, you know, competing batch and online. And they said, well, the products that we're selling at that time of night, let's say, you know, maybe it's 3 a.m. in the morning uh, when their batch systems were taking over and their onlines were supposedly down. The products that they were selling 
at that time of day and night were not very attractive. Okay, so uh, they were hoping people weren't actually ordering these products that were being <laughs> advertised at three in the morning. But as you know, there's always someone who's going to buy it. So these <laughs> yeah. products, they actually had a name too. Uh, they called them golden turkeys, which I'm not quite sure where that came from. But uh, they would basically batch up those orders and process them when their onlines came back up. <laughs> so <Fine>. but the, <laughs> the, idea, the idea was to have traffic slow at that time. And so that there weren't a lot of orders coming in and they could process them um, later on. But as you know, that does not work today. There's no way that that type of processing would work in today's environments. People don't wait. They don't want to wait. They want instant gratification. And uh, there's no more hiding outages, you know, that way. Yeah. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that's always a funny story, I think, um, that led us to, um, you know, redesigning some of the some of their tables and some of the way they uh, process their data so that they could have an outage without it being a true, <laughs> you know, outage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's one... what lots of people are striving for still in some cases, isn't it? With very old systems or applications, it's still a challenge to achieve that. Right. And in, oh, through the years, DB2 has started to provide us ways of dealing with that. So one way, mm -hmm. you know, we the smoke and mirrors techniques, right, where we um, mirror tables, right? So we have a table that's online and accessible while we're doing maintenance on a copy of it. Then, of course, clone tables came about, and that gave us the ability within DB2 to do that. But then the switching mechanism still provided or still left us with an outage. Um, yeah. And nowadays, you know, you would go into version 13, version 12, and one of the APARs last year brought in the online load replace, which now gives us a more complete solution for doing this smoke and mirrors technique, as I, I'd like, I call it, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you're working over here on one thing while you're doing your work on your maintenance on the other. Yeah. You've seen a lot of growth in DB2 and in its uh, in its functionality. What would you say, in your opinion, were the the highlights in the history of DB2? You mentioned data sharing. Yeah, I, I would have one. to. That's probably the number one. I would think it was data sharing to allow the, uh, you know, to the multiple DB2s to be able to you know access data concurrently and to be able to expand workloads across multiple DB2 subsystems across the sysplex. I think that was one of the key things for making DB2 a serious powerhouse in terms of transaction processing availability. And another thing about DB2 though, and about the mainframe is security. You'd never see a mainframe get hacked. And so you have large companies supporting these massive workloads and they're secure. They're secure as they can be. They're highly available. It's you know, very robust. And of course, each feature of DB2 that comes out in the last few releases is supporting that, right? It's, yeah. um, you know, we have, we have support for growth. And as you know, within the tables themselves now have been kind of re-architected in a way uh, with the UTSs and the, the relative page numbering and so forth to allow us to grow beyond previous limitations. And of course, the mainframe and the Z16s and everything else um, are now also being well optimized to support this massive workload growth um, and transaction growth. 
because it's it's still nonstop, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's not going to it's not going to go away. And even with this this push towards the mainframe modernization, where people want to move off the mainframe, that's going to happen. And then you know it's going to happen, and they're going to start rolling back. So these transactions, these this growth is still going to continue, and the mainframe is still going to be optimized to handle it. No matter if you if you want to move off, you want to come back, you want to do hybrid. DB2 is going to be there to support it. And now yeah. with the, yeah. the influence of artificial intelligence being pushed into the engine with the SQL DI and SQL Data Insights, um, yeah. you know, it's making DB2 an even more powerful support for these modernized applications. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much to DB2 now, isn't there? With the, the artificial intelligence, as you just said, and, and the analytics plus more regular stuff which continues to expand and evolve. I often find it find it quite overwhelming and I'm not really sure what new thing I should try and get my head around next. Are there any of the relatively new features in DB2 that that you're particularly excited about, like the SQL Insights? Well, I'm just starting to get excited about the SQL Insights. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I'm still sticking with a lot of the traditional issues, <laughs> if you will. And that's, <laughs> that's trying to get these, massive data stores uh, working. Uh, you know, we still have, we have very large tables and we've got to get these converted over to, you know, the new technologies so we can exploit all the new features coming out in DB2. So I'll be honest with you, I'm still looking at a lot of the traditional problems, but yeah, I'm a SQL data insights and that has poked my interest. Um, but yeah, I have not had any experience with it just yet, but um would like to get into that um, while tackling the old problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the old, the old problems don't go away. <laughs> with the tackling the old problems, you know, so so a lot of times, you know, redesigning is not an option. Um, so a lot of these features that are coming out in DB2, allowing us to expo further exploit uh, more performance and availability opportunities, it's a challenge to make them fit into some of our old designs that weren't designed for the what we need today and so that is still a challenge and so i'll admit that um you know i'm still still working on that <laughs> still working on <laughs> on get, getting these new features to work so that we can exploit all these new features of version 12 and 13 um, with our 30 year old designs <laughs> yeah that really is quite a challenge isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> You mentioned that uh, you've done a lot of education in your time. How does the educator educate themselves? Are you close to the developers or do you just sit in a quiet room with a, an IBM manual? <laughs> Both. <laughs> um, well, I, I do a lot of a lot of self-educating, um, but I do have, a, of course, I'm part of the, the gold program the IBM Gold program, and they provide us a lot of insight into, into uh, DB2 as what well, into uh, a lot of the other technologies being developed by IBM, especially in the area of the Z16. Um, I was fortunate enough to be at the Bildungen Lab last week in Germany um, that IBM hosted for the Gold Consultants, and we got a nice deep dive into a lot of what IBM is up to, a lot of what development is going on. So for me, personally, that's my biggest educational event is not just the event, going to the lab, but having access to lab folks and the uh, the gold consultant program, allow, giving us access to a lot of good information, uh, access to people and, and so forth. So that's a continual source of learning. 
as well as the IBM Champion program. I find it, you know, that of course is a continual source of learning and I take advantage of that as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, self-education, reading, reading the manuals, testing things out. Um, you know, I do have clients where I have opportunities to be able to, you know, experiment with some of the new features as well as, you know, test out theories of, on old features and so forth. So, you know, hands-on a little bit, but more so um, just doing research and trying to keep up. And that's almost a full-time job. You know, I try to keep up so that I can relay this information to other people without others having to go look for it. So I try to try to keep myself on top of it to help others yeah. know what's yeah. out there. Yeah, that's really good. And there's, there's probably no such thing as a typical day for you. But could you describe a typical week? Because I'm sure it's probably pretty interesting. <laughs> um, it depends, of course, because <laughs> it's not... Uh, you know, none of us, of course, have a desk job anymore, really. Um, so it's not full time at any one particular client. It's remote for um, different clients, depending on what stage of the project they're in or what my role in, in a project would be. And then, of course, uh, in between there is user group meetings. And like I was just mentioning, a lab visit last week and um, educational events. So a typical week, it could be anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you have any downtime? What, what do you like to do when you're oh, not sure. doing Sure, GBT? I've got downtime. I, I'd like to think of myself as uh, heading towards retirement. Um, so no, <laughs> not trying not to work one. too hard. <laughs> but no, I... I have downtime, um, of course. Uh, like I said, with uh, working from home now, for the most part, I think we make downtime a lot, e- lot easier That's true. to accommodate. Um, what do you do yeah, for I downtime? Do. How do you relax? Uh, I have cats that keep me company and keep me busy. And um, uh, hmm, I lead a pretty boring life. I'd say because well because most of my life has been on the road and you know my adventures are on the road and so when I'm home I like to keep it quiet and uh, watch you know catch up on tv you know visit with the husband and the cats and uh, yeah I wouldn't blame you <laughs> I, pre- I prefer being That's on nice. the road, though. I'll be honest with you. COVID killed me, the whole not being able to travel because uh, that was my life for a long time. And I liked it. I, I like yeah. being, being on the road, meeting people. I mean, I've worked in I don't know how many countries over the years, and I enjoyed every bit of it, of mm. traveling and meeting new people, making new friends, having new experiences. And um, it's, Have you got uh, any quite- funny stories from your travels? I have, I'm sure there's plenty out there. Um, funny stories. <laughs> I have just have one interesting one of uh, happened years ago. You know, we we're talking about war stories earlier. I do have one story from the battlefield um, that resulted in an injury. And I was uh, teaching a class in South Africa in Cape Town. And the hotel that I was staying at before I was getting ready to leave was rather old. It was right on the uh, right on the water. It was on the beachfront and really is a really old hotel. And I was scared of the elevator. Um, I, I took it upstairs, but I was not about to take it downstairs. It scared me. So I decided to take the stairs with luggage in one hand. Um, I had grabbed the railing with the other hand and I slipped and I broke my hand in half when it got between the railing and the wall. And so I'm stuck in Cape town with a, you know, um, you may have to edit this with my bone basically coming out of my hand. <laughs> I had to get on a flight 
because I had to get back to the States. And I asked the uh, barista. So you didn't get it treated? Oh, I got it treated somewhat, but I happened to be getting coffee and I asked the barista where I could get some painkiller, you know, where there was a pharmacy. And she says, you don't need a pharmacy. (laughs) You need a doctor. (laughs) And it just so happened that there was a doctor in the mall. There's a, I don't know if you, if you're familiar with Cape Town, there's the Alfred and Victoria mall right there in the Bay. So I went to the mall and I asked the security guard, you know, where the doctor was. (laughs) And he (laughs) took me, he took me up to a, a second floor where there was a doctor. And it was like walking into a scene from the jungle book because the doctor was dressed in a white safari suit And he was an old gentleman, old man, white beard in a white safari suit. And his office had animal heads all over (laughs) it. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but I I was in so much pain. I didn't care. And he looked at my hand and he says, "Okay, I'm going to need x-rays and we're going to have to put put you for a cast. And this I said, I don't have time. I have a flight in two hours. And he goes, "Okay." he takes a bandage wraps my arm in my hand and he says, good luck. <laughs> oh. <laughs> only, charged, only charged me $75, which was great. But um, then he gave me some painkiller, which uh, did everything to me, but you know, cure the pain. Um, but in, anyway, I, I got back, flew from Cape Town to Johannesburg, Johannesburg to Madrid, Madrid to Chicago, Chicago to my hometown of Springfield, Illinois, where I promptly went into the hospital and they could not set the hand because it was too broken. Um, They had to go do surgery the next day and put pins in it and a metal plate and then put a stint, you know, stitch it up, put a uh, splint on the hand, a brace. And then two days later, I was off again for a five city or five country road show for um, (laughs) a software vendor and uh, and it was uh, Italy, France, and um, I believe a few others, but it ended in Germany and it ended in Oktoberfest in Germany. It was time for the, (laughs) it was time for the stitches to come out of the hand. And, you know, so I grabbed a pair of scissors, removed my stitches and went to Oktoberfest and had a few beers. And uh, luckily it was my, it was my left hand that was broken, not my right hand, my drinking hand. So okay, <laughs> I was able to oh lift that mast of air and uh, it was a wonderful time. <laughs> the things you go through for a beer. <laughs> Basically Could not Woman. pass up a free beer. <laughs> But I'm, I've just got visions of this bone sticking out of your hand now, which uh, I'm probably going to have nightmares about now. <laughs> well, that's my worst war story. <laughs> that's quite an impressive one. That, that is impressive. Yeah, hats off. You should deserve a, a gold medal for that, or at least a gold consultancy. <laughs> Why would you put yourself through that? I would take, hey, I would take I'm, time I'm, off. Hey, I'm, dedic- I'm dedicated. I'm, you know. <laughs> yeah. I had I had uh, I had things to do. There's pictures of all this of, of me presenting with this big cast on my hand, <laughs> and I think there's even a picture of Oktoberfest as well out there. Great. 
<laughs> Earlier on, you mentioned um, when you started working with uh, Richard Yevich and DB2 data sharing. That was actually when I first met uh, Richard was in a uh, an IBM announcement. And I think it was a, a BMC junket in Mayfair in London. And uh, Richard talked about data sharing and what IBM were going to offer. And our eyes were just rolling. Uh, what was it like working for uh, for the great man himself? And how did you feel you know, missing him afterwards after he sadly died? Well, when I uh, I first met Richard in 90, in 96, when I was with IBM, when I was doing the data sharing work, and uh, we actually butted heads at the tech conference because he was telling one of my war stories, um, <laughs> you know. And I, I went up to him. I went up to him after after his presentation. Of course, no one could tell a war story better than Richard, you know. And I and I went up to him afterwards and I said, "Hey, that's not the way this really happened." You know, I was there <laughs> and this is what this is what really happened. And he laughed about it. And he says, he says, uh, I want to talk to you later. That's OK. And um, long story short, we met up in Barcelona, which was uh, just after the tech conference where in Utah, where we talked initially. And we met in Barcelona and he says, I would like for you to come work for me on a on a project. Uh, you know, to build this per, this one terabyte table um, for the United States government in uh, West Virginia. And I said, really? I said, what an opportunity, you know, to work with someone who I considered a mentor of mine. I always looked up to him for years um, when he, you know, had his, um, his company RYC. And, you know, I know he worked with COD and DATE in the original days and, um, yeah you know, with Gabrielle Warkowski and, um, you know, that whole group of people was, were quite something to look up to, you know, when I'm starting DB2. So I was, I was flattered and I took that opportunity to, to leave IBM and go out on my own and pursue this, uh, this opportunity. He was quite something to work with. Richard was, <laughs> now you, you want to talk war stories. Richard yeah. was quite something to work with. If you ever met him, uh, you, you realize that he didn't hold back. And that was both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, you know, people liked his honesty and people hated his honesty because it, it, it was interesting. And so I'll, I'll just quickly tell you one war story about Richard because, um, I looked up to him. I thought he was brilliant. I absolutely, he came up with ideas that I never, never could see, but he always had a flair for the dramatic too. So we were talking about Oracle, you know, people bragging about Oracle being the database of choice, DB2 being the old mainframe. And so we were at a client site discussing, I can't even remember the exact purpose, but it was an Oracle versus DB2, I believe, comparison discussion. And we were in a room with a bunch of young people, younger than, than Richard, and they were saying, oh, you people with the, your mainframes and your glass houses, and why do you have to have the mainframe behind a, a glass wall? What are you afraid of? And he says something about, well, where do you keep your backups? Where do you keep your, you know, your uh, servers? And the guy says, well, under my desk. You know, it's Oracle. <laughs> you know, I, can, I can keep it anywhere. This is client server. You keep the data next to the, the user, right? And of course, all of us had problems with client server, right? Back in the day, <laughs> it mm. didn't quite go as planned. And of course, people rolled back onto the mainframe, just like what we're kind of seeing somewhat today. 
But anyway, so he got real offended by that because they were calling him old. And they said, yeah, you, your old mainframers and this, that, and the other. And he got real offended by that. So we broke for lunch. You know, we, we went and had lunch and he says, I'll be right back. And so he left for a little bit. I don't know where he went. And, and pretty soon we get, we reconvene in our meeting with these folks. And one guy goes, um, where's, uh, where's the DBAs? Where, where's so-and-so? And I don't know. I don't know. Where are they? And then finally they go, oh, we've got emergency our DBAs aren't here right now because the server's missing. <laughs> server's missing. And I, and I thought, oh no, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> this can't be happening. And sure enough, he had <clears throat> removed their server. And it was in the back of our rental car. And, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, you can't recover? Is there a problem? And, uh, anyway, needless to say, we were fired. <laughs> uh, from that job and uh, uh so i always had to tread lightly with him because you just never knew what was going to set him <laughs> off and what he was going to do so i'll tell you he was he was an interesting one to work with and then of course we partnered up formed ylna in 90 99 and we went on to build some some pretty large databases db2 databases for some various uh various clients financial mostly financial clients and did a lot of design reviews, a lot of performance and uh, availability and recovery reviews and so forth. And so he was a very interesting bird uh, to work with. And uh, it was unfortunate. Um, and he was a dynamic speaker. And uh, um, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned one terabyte tables because uh, that was the limit at the time. Uh, gosh, mm -hmm. what's the limit now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it depends, of course. You know, I think it's 128 terabytes, isn't it? Oh no, it's beyond uh, yeah. that. It's well beyond that. I'm sorry, it's well beyond that. I was hoping to be retired before it got well beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> I know Julie's got war stories of of staying up all weekend reorging huge table spaces. Yeah, converting a segmented table space that had a lob to a partition by gross table space. It took 71 hours to reorg. But it oh, worked. <laughs> that was about a terabyte and a half. And it, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a massive number in, in the scheme of things now. But when you've got to do it all in one go, it's, yeah, it's significant. Right. And, and it's been interesting, too, with all, all these changes coming out the last, well, since version nine, all these little changes that come out, everything requires a reorg and a reorg of the entire table space. The entire and, table space. You yeah. know, uh, we just don't have the capability to do that. And no. uh, if you've you know, got a PBG as, as, that's out of control, you can't reorder uh, thing to convert it to partition by range. It's just too big. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's again where those where all those challenges lie. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's where designing for performance and designing for scalability comes in. Right. Um, and even even with the best job you do for that, um, still something's gonna get you in the end. There's always something sneaking around the corner that you didn't think of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we do our Definitely. we do our best. But the problem the problem is some some things that come out don't take that into account that we have designed a certain way. And I don't I don't want to knock anything that IBM development has done because they've done so much good stuff. But there was a couple of things that came out that bit us because IBM didn't realize the nonsense that we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> to keep ourselves available and performing, you know, we tweak things, you know, to, to make things work for us. And then when things come and change that, take away our, our ability to manage our data the way we wanted to, uh, that hurts. 
So, you know, the communication between, between the users in the lab is critical so that things like that don't happen. But sometimes, sometimes we lose, you know, sometimes we do the best we can being creative and designing for performance and so forth and for availability and something down the road might get us. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And things are always changing, aren't they? So even if it's right when you do it. Exactly. Then, exactly. You know, weeks or months later, it, it could be different. <laughs> yeah. The customer always keeps us on our toes. Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Susan. And it's been fun. And we really appreciate the time that you've put into educating us, lowly DBAs and developers through the years, and all of your conference presentations and books and catalog posters that have bedecked our walls <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time to speak to julia and me thank you yeah we really appreciate it and uh, i i am going to go and google pictures of you at Oktoberfest now <laughs> there should be plenty <laughs> <laughs> thank you susan thanks for uh thanks for having me visit idug.org for the latest db2 community news information about events and all of our technical content Tune in again soon for the next podcast at idog.org forward slash podcast.